Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. This is episode 111 of the podcast, my favorite tattoo. And we are here to talk about technology in bushcraft. So stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door. To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey folks, this is another Hunt Forge Grow segment of the podcast. This one is sponsored by The Hunter's Journey. Go over to thehuntersjourney.com. This coming September is the next season of Hunter's Journey classes and community. So you can jump in and join the community in September. And of course, talking about Hunt, for, uh, Hunt Forge Grow and the Hunter's Journey, obviously I got to mention that we have my good friend and our guest for this segment, Chris Gilmore, who is the founder of both HuntForgeGrow.com and TheHunter'sJourney.com. And this episode is all about hunting strategies or tactics regarding whitetail deer. Uh, there's four strategies we want to talk about in this episode segment. And so we're just going to dive right into them. These are the tactics that we like to use or that we recommend for folks that are getting into it just to try and gain an edge against those animals when you're out there trying to get them into the freezer. So Chris, take it away, brother. How do we get into this? What's your first favorite strategy? Yeah. And I'll, you know, there's a ton of different strategies out there and tactics, you know, and um, you know, different people just have ones that are more conducive to how they like to be in the woods, how they like to move their body type, uh, the tool that they're using to hunt. So there's many more than the four here, but these four uh, kind of groups are some of the more common ways. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hoping to do today is just really do kind of an overview for somebody that's totally kind of new to the idea of hunting and trying to just wrap their head around like, okay, I, I, I you know, I, I know that hunting can be sustainable. Uh, theoretically, I feel like I would like to actually go and do that. I want to have a relationship with my own food, but I don't even have a clue what that actually looks like to get out in the woods. Mm -hmm. So hopefully coming out of today's talk, you're going to have a little bit of an idea of like some of the different strategies, what that actually looks like, the advantages and disadvantages. And then you can think about, well, which one of those best suits the way that I like to move through the woods. Um, and then you can start designing your gear and your setup and your strategy around the kind of tactic that we're, we're about to share right now. So there's four we're going to chat about today. We're going to talk about still hunting. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the spot and stock. Uh, we're going to talk about ground, ground blinds. And then we're going to talk about hunting out of trees, either with a tree stand or a saddle. Mm -hmm. And ironically, uh, we'll start with still hunting. Ironically, you know, still hunting, you think is like, okay, you're just standing there still. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's actually like the most active out of the four of them. Well, yes, <laughs> it's in the top two for most active. Uh, spot yeah. and stock is very active as well. Uh, but still hunting is more active than uh, hunting in a tree stand or hunting from a ground blind. So most definitely, most definitely. Do you want to do a definition of what still hunting means? Kim? Yeah. Still hunting is probably my favorite way to hunt, even though I'm like the most physically inactive looking person you've ever met. Uh, still hunting is one of my favorite ways because you are proactively hunting every step. You have to think about every step you're taking. You are moving at a very slow pace, observing your surroundings at all times. And it's not just looking for the deer, but looking for the best venue to get to that deer, uh, trying to move through the environment, almost like a ghost or a shadow. It's very, very uh, in tune with how my dad raised me to hunt. And so it's something I absolutely love. That and spot and stocking. Spot and stock I consider is kind of like an evolution of still hunting with the advent of binoculars and scopes and everything else to help us really see where they are and then move to them. So still hunting is... 
the primordial form of hunting that all our ancestors did so that when you get into still hunting, you feel primal. You feel like you're in tune with your environment. You feel like you're a true old school hunter, regardless of the type of weapon or equipment you're carrying on. You, you could be using everything that's space age and top of the, of, of, of the line, but you get on the ground and move quiet and you're taking steps, watching your landscape, looking for where there could possibly be a deer or whatever other animal might even give you away. That's one part that people seem to forget is you may not see a deer, but that blue jay might see you and take off screaming. And now you're definitely not going to see a deer. So learning to slow yourself down and move on the landscape, it is, it's high intensity on your muscles, high intensity on your cardiovascular in a lot of ways, because you got to stop in mid in mid step. There's a lot of balance involved. It's really, really fun. It's, it's one of the best ways to hunt. In my opinion, I'm a, I'm a still hunting nerd. If you haven't figured that out yet, but yeah, yeah. still hunting. It's just, you're moving slow on the landscape constantly aware that you may have to take a shot at any given moment and out of you know i've been an outdoor guy my entire life you know everything from you know canoe guiding and mm. rock climbing and first aid and all different types of hunting and foraging and and stuff and out of everything i've done in the outdoors you know i feel like still hunting is like the ultimate combination of like being in peak awareness pushing your tracking skills your relationship with the land and your ability to move uh, across the landscape in tune with nature. Like there's, there is nothing I've experienced in the outdoors that, that makes me feel connected in that kind of way. And is primed on all of those things I just mentioned as, as going out still hunting. Totally. So you're probably grasping right now, you know, still hunting, the essence of it is, is you're going to go out and you're actually going to just incredibly slowly move across the landscape and go looking for the deer. Mm -hmm. Now, Sounds easy enough. Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. Uh, it's incredibly, it takes an incredible amount of skill. And that yeah. skill doesn't start with the moment you step in the woods. Um, let, let's start when you step in the woods for just a quick overdue. So I show up the day of the woods and I've done a bunch of prep to get there. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I'm going to show up and I'm going to basically tune into my senses. I'm going to listen to the birds. I'm going to pay attention to where the wind's coming from. I'm going to think about the weather, you know, uh, depending on the humidity, depending on the moisture level the night before the last rain, that's actually going to change the route that I choose to walk across because I'm thinking about like, okay, you know, like it, it was uh, rainy yesterday uh, morning, but then we got some sun afternoon. Uh, that hill over there, the leaves are already dry. If I walk through there, I'm going to be rustling leaves. It's super loud. But you, I know if you. I cut through the evergreen, that little balsam fir patch, well, those leaves probably haven't dried out yet because um, sure, they all got the rain on them, but they haven't been exposed to the sun in the later part of the day and the morning that the leaves on the hill have. So I'm mm. actually going to choose my route to go through those firs because I know the ground will be a little moister and the leaves aren't going to rustle. Like it's that kind of in-depth reading the landscape um, that allows you to be able to do it effectively. So it's a really, really fun way to engage your senses, your tracking skills, and your ability to be invisible. So you show up at your spot and you basically, you pick your route based on the weather and all those variables. And you just start moving through the woods incredibly slowly and strategically across the landscape, trying to actually find your, your prey. Um, and then once you see your deer that you want to target, um, you're going to have to gauge really, really quickly. Okay, is there a chance they're just going to come right towards me, which is a possibility? Or am I going to have to kind of cut them off somewhere and actually get closer to them? Or are they staying where they are and I actually have to come to them? So there's also this real fun strategy and tactical part where you have to adapt on the fly and think about, okay, what do I do right now to outsmart this animal that is absolutely brilliant and has phenomenal senses, you know? So the next thing to know to be a still hunter is you got to really think about what are the dominant senses of that animal. So mm -hmm. for a deer, 
their vision for detail is not very good. Their vision, their vision for slight movement is phenomenal. Yep. Their sense of smell is even better. Uh, yep. And they've got pretty darn good hearing, but smell beats all of those. So you need to think about their senses in choosing how you move across the landscape. And what's amazing, like knowing that they, so you can't get away with a lot of movement unless it's a windy day. Uh, they're going to see you really, really quick. But knowing that they don't see depth perception well, they don't see color well, you can work that to your advantage and sometimes be like right out in the open, super still, and they'll walk right into you. Uh, I remember a hunt I was on years ago where I almost got to shoot a really beautiful big buck. Uh, it was either an eight or a 10 point and it was down in Orangeville. And I was actually stalking through some um, young sapling forests. So young maple saplings. And it was, there was a light rain that day and the, the saplings, you know, they weren't thicker than an inch or two in diameter, but there's so many of them in the forest. And it was perfect because the rain made it really quiet to walk. Mm. And I'm literally just standing up walking through the middle of them. But you got to imagine there's just this broken pattern all around me with all these little saplings and I'm walking into the wind so they can't smell me. And there's this beautiful buck. And he's, you know, he's 50, 60 yards away and he's walking right towards me. And I just froze right on that spot. Like I didn't hide behind a tree. I didn't hide behind cover. I literally just stood still in the forest in plain sight of the deer. And because it couldn't judge the depth perception well, and I didn't move a hair, it just thought I was a stump or like, you know, a tree that was partially broken or a rock, you know, it couldn't really tell. And it walked straight towards me uh, as it got closer and it looked over its shoulder to feed a little bit. I was able to get down on my knee and partly draw my bow. Uh, and it came up within about 15 yards of me. Uh, and basically it came in on a bit of a weird angle and I had to make a quick decision. So I tried to pivot just a second to let off my shot. Uh, and in that quick pivot, it was just gone and I didn't get the shot, but there's this beautiful ability of like, once you understand how their senses work or particularly how they see, then you want to figure out how do you blend into the landscape, right? Yeah. And that could look like, okay, there's the deer. Uh, if I go and silhouette myself up against this big tree uh, and I've got good camo, they're probably just going to think I'm part of that tree and they're not going to notice anything. Um, if you're walking in an open area and you kneel down near some other rocks or stumps, they might just think you're a rock or a stump there, you know? Um, if you're in that sapling forest or there's small trees, you might be able to just stand still in that setup. So you need to learn how they see, and then how do you actually become that within the, fo the forest? So it's this beautiful way of getting in tune with the natural landscape. Um, so that's, that's kind of the essence of still hunting in my mind. And I guess what I'll just leave you with is that like, there's a lot of prep work that goes into being able to do that. You have to have phenomenal tracking skills, naturalist skills. Uh, stalking and movement skills, and you need to understand deer behavior. So it's not necessarily a beginner hunting option. Um, so, you know, uh, and beginners, by all means, go for it. Try it. Yeah. You're going to learn a ton, but it really does take an incredible amount of skill versus, you know, sitting in a tree stand or sitting in a blind. You don't necessarily have to be as skilled if you know how to put it in the right place. Um, for those that are interested in learning how to do that, you know, if you're listening and being like, oh my goodness, that sounds like a dream. Like I want to be a still hunter, but like, I definitely don't have the skill set. That's why Caleb and I designed the hunter's journey, our course and community. Uh, we will help you develop those skills. And we have a whole community of instructors, as well as a community of people at various levels in their hunter's journey that get together frequently throughout the year. Um, and, and basically mentor and grow and learn together and troubleshoot and help people adapt on the fly. So uh, if you dream of being able to still hunt, check out thehuntersjourney.com and consider joining us in our September cohort. Uh, okay. But that's most of what I have to share about still hunting. Anything you would add to that point? 
two, two, uh, really three things. The, the first thing I want to say is try to get footwear that has got soft soles or at least really light soles. Uh, you want to kind of feel the ground as you go, because if you're wearing those big, clunky, heavy army surplus style boots, you will break branches and twigs that are on the ground and not realize it until you've broken them. You can't feel them. So a pair of uh, Vibram sole light shoes, like hunting shoes or hiking shoes, moccasins, if you have the right kind of conditions to wear those. Still hunting came from indigenous North Americans and it became formed because they had to be able to hunt in thick woods. And so the moccasin kind of swings into that really, really well. The next point I want to make is when people think, how fast should I be going? Uh, half a kilometer an hour is like the, the best way to explain this. You want to be going so slow that you should be worried the sun's going to come up before you get to where you want to go. Because the, at the end of the day, you don't want to get to where you want to go. You want to get to where the deer are. And they may be on the move to the same spot you're going to, which comes to the final part. I love still hunting because I can hybridize it with my other tactics. If I'm trying to get to my tree stand, but we slept in or there was traffic on the way or something like that, I may not get to my tree stand early enough to not bust those deer. Therefore, I will still hunt to get to my stand. And I might not get to my tree stand until nine in the morning, which is well past sunrise. But I didn't scare anything on my way there. So you can blend these and hybridize these tactics to work to your benefit. So those are the real main points that I want to throw in at the very end. You know, I was just thinking, I'll hit up with each of our points here. I'll just hit up a quick little couple advantages and disadvantages to kind of end up before we move on, totally. um, in my opinion. Because, you know, with any any hunting tactic, there's going to be its strengths and its challenges to it, you know? So it's really, and they all, people have proven them all successful. So it's really about kind of what hunter do you want to be uh, and how do you want to move and where you're at in your journey. So some of the advantages in my mind of being a still hunter, uh, one is it's it's just nothing short of magical and it'll push your skills in ways that are just profound. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm a different person because uh, I've spent time still hunting. Like literally totally. I'm a different human being. I think about the world differently because of it. I understand the world differently because of it. Uh, second, it gives you just a ton of freedom. You know, uh, it's amazing to just be able to kind of go anywhere you want. You know, when you're hunting a tree stand, you're hunting a blind, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're kind of pigeoning yourself into a strategy for the day or a position um with uh with the still hunting you know you're you're just kind of going uh with the wind you know where where's the day going to take you so that's really amazing uh you get to cover a lot of ground and as you're covering ground you're kind of scouting as you go you know if you're in a tree stand all day um it might be the perfect place to be but you're not learning a ton about what's going on around the forest but when i'm still hunting i'll often like come across a fresh antler rub or a scrape or I'll learn where there's a new bedding area, or I'll discover mm -hmm. something else about the land. So I'm actually scouting and learning about the land as I move in the landscape. Um, and in any given moment, you could just get lucky and stumble across something, you know? Totally. Um, so those are some of the advantages in my mind. Uh, some of the, and you know, when I say disadvantage, I don't mean that as in like bad or wrong. I just mean some of the more challenging components of it. First mm -hmm. is the fact it does take a ton of skill, especially if you're a bow hunter. Uh, still hunting is going to be significantly easier if you're hunting with a, a rifle um, because you just have so much more distance. Whereas with a bow, you have to get so much closer. So it's a very challenging skill set, particularly for a bow hunter. Um, There's also less moving parts with a firearm in the sense of like movement. If you're having to draw your bow back, that's a lot of movement. If you got to rearrange your bow so it's not going to hit branches, that's a lot of movement. Firearm, you just got to raise it. It's already yeah. ready to go. As long as you slide the safety off, you're ready to go. 
So there's very little movement. It, it, it is much easier as a firearm hunter than it is with a bow hunt. Definitely. Yeah, I, point, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And then the other two, I'd just throw on that, um, you know, because you're just kind of randomly moving across the landscape, or I shouldn't say randomly, you're strategically moving across the landscape. You could have, you could see that beautiful deer and not have a shot because mm -hmm. there's too much brush between you and the deer, right? Uh, whereas if you set up in a ground blind or a stand, you're probably going to set up in a place where you have really good shots set up and you know that, okay, if a deer comes from here or here, I've got a perfect sight line. Whereas you could come across that perfect deer and just not have a sight line on it when you're, uh, when you're hunting. So you don't have the ability to kind of pre prepare a spot for that ideal spot. And then also gauging distance, you know, uh, and again, this might be more relevant if you're the bow hunter. Mm -hmm. Um, because on the fly, you might not have time to pull out a range finder and it's like, okay, well, is that deer 25 yards away from me or 55 yards away from me right now, or somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So it's going to make for a harder shot, um, because you're not able to gauge distance where again, if I'm on a ground blind or a tree stand, I likely know where my shooting lanes are and the exact distances. So I can make sure I set up and aim, uh, perfectly. So there's just a few things to consider with still hunting. Uh, the next one we'll chat about is spot and stock. Uh, and really spot and stock is a lot, is, is very similar to, to still hunting in some ways. You want to do like a spot and stock definition, Caleb? Sure. So spot and stock is an evolution of still hunting, I would say with the advent of optics. So you get to an area, let's say it's public land, or you've gotten permission from several properties to hunt a large swath of land. You get out early and you're checking with glass. You're checking out with binoculars. This is really common in the Western states and Western provinces because you got such open country, the deer could be genuinely anywhere. So getting out with your glass, your binoculars or spotting scope, whatever it may be, and you're scanning, scouting, scanning, scouting from one area, and then bam, there's a deer right over there. Okay, that deer is like 500 yards away in open country, open fields. Now I need to get close to that deer because there's no way I can take a shot at 500 yards. How close do I have to get? First off, we have to know what our optimal range is for our weapon. So if you're using a bow, you got to know how far you feel comfortable taking shots with that bow in open country. If you're with a firearm, you have to know how far you can shoot with that with, with still being accurate. So let's say we've trained ourselves with a firearm to shoot 200 yards. Well, I'm 550. I got to move 350 yards closer without giving that deer any sign of my movement. So we got to go back into spot and stock, but we can also start looking at the topography. I can use tactics of saying, okay, from here to that tree is a hundred yards and I'm going to probably use a range finder or if I've trained myself and I know the landscape there, I can get, I can get by without a range finder. Uh, that tree is a hundred yards from me, which gets me a hundred yards closer to that deer without them seeing me. I'm going to get to that tree. Now I'm going to see this little gully up ahead and that gets me to move even closer. I can walk up this little trench or this little ditch or this gully and get 300 yards which gets me almost to 200 yards. So I just got to move another 50 yards and maybe there's a rock outcrop or a hedge or a bunch of bushes. Now I can get to that. And now I'm at 200 yards. I can take that shot. And so spot and stalking at the end of the day is an evolution of using binoculars or other optics with still hunting and working the landscape to get closer. It really does depend on where you are. If you're in thick, thick, thick woods, spot and stalk can be very challenging because you're not going to be able to see the deer well ahead of you. And that's where you may want to revert back to still hunting. Spot and stock works really well in farm fields. It works really well in like open marshland. It works really well in badlands and prairie systems. Think open and you're going to think spot and stock. Think thick woodland, you're going to think still hunting. They work practically the same, but it depends on the landscape. 
Yeah, great definition. I wouldn't add much to that. So, you know, just to, if I was to think about again, like the advantage, disadvantage and idea, uh, you know, advantages, like you cover a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you're in an area and there's just not much moving around, well, you move to a new area and you just keep moving until you find something, right? Um, so you cover a lot of ground, uh, which means there's theoretically a better chance of coming across something. If you're somebody that really struggles with getting fidgety or sitting still for too long, you know, it might be more conducive to your personality because there's no idle time, you know, yep. uh, you're basically going from one vantage point to the next, uh, probably the big are the two, you know, and again, I, I say disadvantage. It's not a disadvantage. It's just, you know, something to consider, uh, would be the habitat like Caleb already mentioned. Uh, it's not very conducive to dense woods, so it's definitely more of a farmland or open mountain habitat, prairie habitat kind of strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes a ton of skill, and you know it's going to be significantly easier. And as I say, easier, I'm not saying easy, but significantly easier with a rifle or a shotgun than it is with a bow. Yeah. Uh, spot and stock with a bow, tons of people do it. Tons of people do it very successfully. Uh, and those tons of people that do it successfully repeatedly have probably been doing it for a long time and put in a lot of hours to be and had a lot of failure and had, and a, had lot a lot of failure, of failure it, to it get takes a ton of challenge to do that with a bow. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Well, let's move on uh, to the next evolution will be the ground blind. Yep. Um, so ground blind is the idea that I'm actually going to have a spot or maybe a number of spots that I'm actually just going to go to and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to wait. Yep. Um, so I actually, when I first started hunting, I almost exclusively hunted from ground blinds and from tree stands for quite a while. And part of that was because when I started out, I didn't actually have a mentor. I knew very little about hunting and deer. Uh, and I was really worried about spooking deer and making mistakes. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to set up on a trail and I'm going to wait and I'm going to be able to work the wind and all those things to my advantage. And it, it's a great strategy to get started for uh, new hunters especially if you don't mind being patient or you want to develop patience. And personally, I love, you know, I can sit in the woods all day long, you know, during hunting season. Uh, and I do both. I still hunt and I still hunt from ground blind. This is funny. I still, <laughs> still hunt and I still hunt from ground blinds and I still hunt from trees. I utilize all of them in my strategy. Uh, but I love, you know, a few days of the hunting season, I'll just pick a spot and sit there from sun up till sundown. And it's beautiful. The number of cool things I see, the reflections I have on life, uh, usually have a nap in the middle of the woods, like so amazing, just lay on the floor and wake up. Uh, so I love hunting from a ground blind. So to set up a ground blind, there's some things you need to know, though. Again, you need to have some knowledge to do this, because if you don't have really good tracking skills, or if you haven't done your preseason scouting and really are dialed in on where the deer are moving and when, the chances are you're just going to sit in the woods all day and not see anything, you know? So you really need to be a good tracker and naturalist to be successful as a ground blind hunter, unless you get lucky. Because uh, sit in any random place in the woods all day long, um, you're probably not going to see anything unless, or, or, or any deer, unless you're in a place with ridiculously thick deer spots. So you're going to want to dial in on really well-used trails. You're going to want to dial in on where are they eating and where are they bedding and what's the trail they go in between those. So you're going to set up on high traffic locations and on top of a high traffic locations, lots of spots, they're high traffic, but only at particular times of the day. So not only do you need to know, okay, this is a high traffic spot, but when is it a high traffic spot? Is it at an, only a particular time of the day? Is it only a particular season of the year? Maybe it's only high traffic in a particular weather condition or when a particular food source is available. So your naturalist skills have to be pretty bang on. Now, where it becomes a real advantage, though, if you can dial in on those things, 
and you know uh, you work the wind to your advantage, you can basically be invisible out in the woods and and set yourself up for a really good chance of success. You know, and I, I have a few uh, ground blind and tree stands uh, that you know I see deer almost every single time I go to them, knowing the right conditions. Um, so that's pretty exciting. And there was a couple of years where I got really busy and I literally harvested my deer the first day of the season because I just knew these tree spots and these ground blinds were such good spots. I knew when the deer were there and you go in there when the wind is perfect. So the wind is basically blowing towards you away from the trail and away from where the deer are coming in from. They don't scent you on the way in. Um, and on top of that, you're able to set up your sight lines. So basically I know the trails the deer are likely to come in on and I can actually clear openings where I'm going to get my shot but I can intentionally leave brush in spots where I can kind of see through it. So I can watch the deer come in, know when they get to the spot, they have my shot and I've got cover around me. So I've actually got spots that I know, okay, when the deer moves this brush, that's when I draw my bow because it can't see me for this moment. Right. And on those sight lines, I know the distance. So if I'm shooting with a bow, I know how to aim properly. So there's some real advantages to working with a ground blind there, but there is a, a lot to know again. And you know, I said this in that earlier segment, but that's why we designed the hunter's journey. You know, it really is a lifelong journey. Uh, Caleb and I have been doing this for a long time and we're still learning constantly. And we have a whole team of mentors in our course, the hunter's journey that all hunt with different strategies and in different habitats and environments. So when we get on these live calls together, you know, we just have a blast and get super nerdy about uh, habitat and ecology, not just for deer, but for ducks and all these other species. Uh, so again, if you want to learn how to develop those skills, check us out over at thehuntersjourney.com. Uh, Caleb, you want to add anything to the ground blinds before we wrap up? Yes. Yeah, so, so ground blinds can be very, very, you know, permanent that you, that you set up in a specific spot and it's always going to be there. I've, I've been to many ground blinds that people have built that are made of wood and they've got a roof on them and they've got cots in there in case they want to stay overnight. And but they can also be portable. You can have I actually have a ground blind chair that has like these hula hoop things with, a, with mesh on them that I can sit down the chair and flip these hula hoops over me and I'm completely blended into the landscape. Cool, and I can move that chair if I have to. It's still pretty clunky. Or what I've done actually with Chris on turkey hunts is we just bring camo netting and we just find, okay, we found a spot. We know this is the right spot. We've checked this area before. The trail cameras are saying right. The weather is saying right. Everything's saying right. But we didn't really want to build anything here because we don't live here. This is public land or whatnot. Maybe the property owner doesn't want you to put up anything permanent. I can just bring that camo net and stretch it up between a couple of cedars or put a couple of stakes in the ground and kind of drape it over those. And now I've got a blind. It can be extremely expensive or extremely cheap. It can be whatever you want to be. Ground blinds are versus, they don't even have to be made from anything man-made. You, Chris and I actually built a ground blind for duck hunting using almost exclusively stuff from the land where we use cedar poles, cedar and spruce roots to lash it all together, made some grass rope to hang off a bunch of cattail. And now we had a perfect ground line that blended in that's still standing to this day a year later. And we used it again. I'll be using it again this coming fall for duck. Ground blinds can be any which way you want to be. It's however you want to work with the landscape and what you've got available to you. So they're very awesome. versatile. Yeah. So advantages and disadvantages, quick summary. Um, you're able to set up in a really, really great spot if you know the landscape and the behavior and, you know, have those tracking skills, uh, and potentially have really great chances of success. Uh, you're able to have those good sight lines pre-prepared. So you don't have to worry about, oh my goodness, there's the deer, but I don't have a sight line to get a shot. Uh, there, there, you can set them up to be very comfortable, mm -hmm. uh, which is nice. If you're going to be spending a lot of time there, it's nice just to be comfortable. Uh, you can even make them, you know, waterproof. So if it's raining, you're out of the rain there. Um, and you know your distances on the shot. So those are some of the advantages. 
some of the challenges to think about with them would be, you know, there's some extra gear and there's some extra prep time. Now, when Caleb and I talk about just using, you know, a piece of like burlap that we spray painted with camo colors or like, you know, just netting and stuff, um, then you're actually fairly mobile. You know, if you're sitting and you're like, okay, we're not in a good spot, you can pack it down and move, but you're going to make a bit of noise when you move. It's going to yep. take a little bit of time. Um, so it just, it takes a little bit more prep, takes a little bit more gear, uh, anchors you in a little bit more. Um, so those are probably some of the drawbacks of it. So, so pluses and minuses. Totally. And then the last one is hunting from up in a tree. So kind of similar variables to the, the ground blind again, um, you know, but the, the big advantage of a tree, and this is why so many people hunt from trees, you know, there's, there's a lot of hunters that only hunt from trees. Mm -hmm. And we chatted about how sense of smell is the biggest factor uh, or the best scent of a deer. And on top of that, they can see the subtlest movement really, really well. So the advantage you have when you go up in a tree is often your scent is now carried away from the immediate area. So they don't smell you or they're less likely to smell you coming in. And two, um, you can actually move around and fidget a little bit more without giving your location away. Um, so getting up in a tree just really kind of gives you the advantage over sight and smell. And you also get this awesome viewpoint uh, where you're able to see a long ways in the forest. You know, when I'm sitting in a ground blind, you can usually just only see what's right in front of you unless you're sitting on the side of like a cornfield or an agriculture field. When you're up in a tree, you know, often you have this beautiful view and you'll get to see deer way off in the distance, you know, or other wildlife way off in the distance. Um, I've taken some really fun videos of just different wildlife, you know, bears and fisher and even deer just walking around underneath me without any idea. Like the number of times I could have jumped on the back of a deer or jumped onto another wild animal and they wouldn't even know when I was there because I'm up above it. Oh, such a cool experience, you know? So it's really neat to sit up in a tree all day. It has a lot of advantages to it. Um, probably the drawbacks to hunting in a tree stand one, you need to be comfortable up in the air. And some people just aren't comfortable up in the air for various reasons, whether you've got a back injury or, you know, a whole host of different reasons, maybe you're getting a little bit older. Um, there's lots of reasons why you might not be comfortable. And certainly there's a risk with climbing up in a tree, right? Um, mm -hmm. probably deer climbing trees is one of the most dangerous things I do during hunting season. Now there's all kinds of things you can do to mitigate against that risk. But, you know, as soon as you go up in a tree, there's a little bit of risk there. Uh, the other challenge, you know, if you're using like traditional tree stands, uh, they're heavy. They take a lot of time to set up. They're expensive. So usually you want to set those all up in the preseason. And once you set them up, like if you're, if you set up and you're like, oh man, I should really be 30 feet over there. Uh, this now takes a ton of time and makes a lot of noise and disturbance to move it. So they're not versatile and adaptable. Um, but you get all those other advantages with the wind and stuff, as long as you know, you're in a good condition. We won't really dive into detail, but the last thing I'll mention, there is this new, and I should say new, newish uh, type of tree hunting that's coming out called saddle hunting. And think about you like you're climbing with tree arborist equipment. So instead of going up with a big clunky metal tree stand, you literally have a harness that goes around your waist and you have portable tree sticks. So I just started hunt saddle hunting last season and I'm completely in love with it because I can go straight up 30 feet straight up any tree that I want now. And I carry all that equipment on my back. So I can go 30 feet up a tree, sit there for an hour and be like, oh, I want to move 30 feet over that way, pop down, walk over, go 30 feet back up. And it creating way less disturbance, way less noise and carrying way less weight through the woods if I had to carry a metal tree stand. So I'll just plant the seed. Uh, saddle hunting is really cool to get into, uh, but you got to invest a bit of money. You know, they're not, they're not cheap. Um, 
And we'll dive into all of these strategies in, in a lot of detail inside of the Hunter's Journey course and help you kind of cultivate your skill set on whichever strategy you choose or even move between them. Totally. The and one, that's about all I think I have to say on this topic, Caleb. Do you want to close us off on this segment? Well, the, the, one, the, the one I would say, if I was going to say there's a drawback to the classic metal frame tree stands that the tree saddles solved is public land. Oh, you, yeah. You put up a Great tree point. stand on public land, there's a good chance it won't be there the day you get there for hunting. Somebody's going to walk off with it or maybe... You know, maybe there's no legal right to do so. And so the MNR come along and see that tree stand set up and that you've done all this stuff on the public property. They're taking it down, confiscating your tree stand. Whereas with a tree saddle, you can be on public land and just scoot up and you're there for the day. And then you take it home with you when you're done. So there's a lot of better access. It's more accessible for those folks that want to be up in the trees, but they don't want to carry a 50 pound piece of steel, you know, 150 yards or even a kilometer into the bush on public access. If you're on private property, tree stands every day of the week, sure. But on public land, it makes more sense for these tree saddles, which once I lose enough weight, I'm probably going to be joining into your little cult of tree saddle folk. Uh, but until then, I'll, I'm going to have to stick on, pub, on uh, private property and stay to my tree stands there. But with I all so, that, Caleb, I would love to get you up in one. It's, it's I'm, super cool. I'm working on my fear of heights. That's what I, my biggest things. I'm. I don't even like being in a regular classic tree stand because I just I'm so afraid of hitting the ground. Uh, it's not the fall that scares me; it's the landing. But uh, I'm working on it all. I'm working on it all. But with all that said and done, with all this experience, with all, like again, I've got 20 plus years of knowledge on hunting. Chris has at least that uh, as much as I do on that. And all these other amazing instructors we have coming into the hunter's journey. Uh, Chris was mentioning in our previous segment that we've got some new instructors. And Chris, you want to mention that with the hunter's journey? Yes. Oh yeah, just one. You know, Caleb and I have been really dreaming. You know, how do we kind of create this new culture around hunting and this new community for folks that maybe you know for whatever reason didn't feel like hunting was accessible for them? Mm -hmm. um, so it started off with just the two of us kind of running these Zoom calls, but it's evolved a long way since then. And what I think is really cool and unique that we have going is we have actually created a whole team of mentors that all have different experience levels and different kind of specialties. Um, you know, people of, uh, yeah, different ethnicities, people of different genders, uh, yeah. people from different parts of the world hunting different habitats that use different strategies. So we have these regular calls as part of the courses now. And, you know, on any given night, we'll have a guest, you know, myself will be the main speaker or Preston Taylor uh, or Sandy Reed, who's uh, this amazing lady from down in Wisconsin, deer hunter, turkey hunter, or Carolyn Knapper, who's a fisheries biologist and is a big game hunter in the mountains in the BC. So on any given night, we'll have like our guest on who we're kind of picking their brain for the night. And as a student, you get to ask them questions, but a whole bunch of the other mentors will be in the room as well. And they'll weigh in and they'll have conversations and share about how they did things. And the students can actually come on and you could come on and say, hey, well, I went out for my first time the other day and this is what happened. Uh, what should I do differently next time? And then multiple mentors will weigh in and tell you how they would approach that situation. So mm -hmm. it's becoming this really, really neat community where I feel like I'm learning just as much as anyone else in the course uh, every time we have our calls. And we're also building out this amazing data bank of, of resources and videos that are just available for you 24-7 to go through at your own time. So if that interests you, uh, registration is opening up again in September, uh, www.thehuntersjourney.com. Uh, in the meantime, you can get on the waiting list and also be part of our free Hunter's Journey newsletter, uh, which we try to send out monthly. There's so much amazing content there. Uh, I say this every time we mention the Hunter's Journey. It's one of my favorite things. And the amount of people that are in it, 
is so enriching, especially in the last couple of years with COVID, where we haven't been able to get together and run classes like this. But even that with us coming out of the pandemic now, man, I cannot wait to see what this looks like in three years, five years, 10 years. The Hunter's this Journey, fall. this I'm fall, this oh man, everything, every single forward. step of it is incredible. It's just amazing to see its growth every single week, not, a, not just every year or every class. It's like every week this becomes more and more. So I'm just so excited to see more of you joining us over at The Hunter's Journey. And if you want to join us, you can find us at www.thehuntersjourney.com. Again, www.thehuntersjourney.com. So this episode comes from, is inspired by, more than comes from, but inspired by a few different things. Um, first and foremost, my love of science fiction. Uh, from Asimov to Roddenberry to everything in between and beyond. Um, as well as my observations of my life. I, I, I consider it very important for a person as they grow, as they mature in a subject or in a lifestyle or in whatever, to contemplate where they came from. Whether that is a week ago, 10 months ago, two years ago, a decade ago, a generation ago, before you had kids before you had this kind of job, before you had that kind of schooling, before you met these kinds of people, who were you before? And that can be two things that can, that can lead to two things. Either you observe that certain things haven't changed. And that's something that's important to think about. If you had a perception 20 years ago that you still have today, is that because it is scientifically or morally accurate or because you haven't explored more? The other thing that'll happen is you're going to cringe. <laughs> you're going to cringe a lot because you've said things stupid. You've said things that were ignorant. Um, to, to be frank, in my past, I've said things that were misogynistic. I've said things that were transphobic. I've said things that were anti-black, homophobic. I know I have. And that is not who I am today. I've, I've tried to learn and I've tried to unlearn certain things and deprogram myself and become more... I don't want to use the term woke because that can get that can easily be weaponized. The term I'm trying to look for is more aware. I've tried to become more aware of me and who I know and how important it is to know all those people. And so I've learned from looking at my past and cringing at those moments, what I need to avoid, but also what I need to fix. And I've tried to repair relationships. I've tried to do what I can. And of course, no one's perfect. I'm, I'm probably still, I probably still have sexist, homophobic, anti-black, Islamophobic, whatever thoughts and actions even that I'm not even aware of. And I'm trying to do better every day. And that's why that contemplation is important to me. So this goes beyond bushcraft. We're only in the first three minutes of the podcast and I've already started getting into what some people will describe as woke culture, social justice warrior, whatnot. It's not that. It's me trying to be a good person to other people. That, that's all that matters to me is I'm a good person to other people. People deserve kindness. People deserve fairness. People deserve equity. People deserve just kindness. I'm trying to be a kind person like my mother, like my grandparents, like all the people that have inspired my life have been kind. And so I'm trying to be like them. And that also leads into this conversation that I'm having. Of, I look at my past and I cringe. And it's not just those kinds of things. It, it goes deeper into bushcraft. It, it, it does. Trust me on this. It, it does. So those are the things that kind of inspired this episode. I've been watching a lot of Star Trek lately. I've been watching a lot of The Orville lately because season three dropped recently on, on whatever platforms you watch The Orville on. Um, 
and has brought up this kind of interesting perception I've had of this dichotomy happening in science fiction, bushcraft, in the world in general. And it was inspired also by our previous episode, The Riddle of Steel, episode 110, uh, where I talked about like flint, flint technology, stone technologies, bone, antler, copper, tooth. They are not obsolete. They're just different. And they need to be looked at differently. And we need to decolonize and deprogram how we perceive technologies. And that made me think about the other direction. About future technology and bushcraft. And where we are and where I am in my evolution and in my, in my um, perception of the world. And so those are the things that inspired this episode. So I want to say that before we get going. Uh, those are the kinds of conversations that are always being contemplated in my mind. When I have a chance to sit back and watch a movie, watch a TV series, read a book, carve wood, whatever it may be. These are the kinds of thoughts that get in there. It's like, how can I be, what did my stuff look like before? And this is just like perfecting any craft. If you're into carving, you look at your original spoons and you want to burn them. You want to throw them in the next fire you possibly can. Uh, if you got into weaving and you're weaving baskets and you're weaving um, fiber into bags and cloth and everything else, you look at your early stuff. Oh man, you cringe. If you're a writer, if you're a writer, look at your original publishing, your original articles. Oh my God, it's cringy. It is so cringy. And that is how it is. And so I wanted to get this started with that, that contemplation of cringe and looking at it and getting uncomfortable about who you were, who you are and considering things. And this is going to help you in life in general, not just in bushcraft. And so let's dive into technology and my cringy, cringy relationship with technology. Sometimes, especially in the early days of my career, I catch myself falling into a trap. This trap is deep, it's convoluted, and frankly, a symptom of being a bit of a gatekeeper in regards to bushcraft. Yeah, I'm calling myself a gatekeeper in regards to bushcraft, and that's something I'm trying to come to terms with. Uh, it is something I have in some ways been trying to unlearn, while in other ways, learn to embrace. There, there's certain things that are good about that. There's certain, a lot of things that can be very negative about that. So... Let, let's start, let's start at the, at the beginning in my late teens and most of my twenties. Okay. Maybe not my beginnings. Cause my beginnings began when I was like a really early teen. Like I start, I got into this stuff a long time ago for me, for me, it's a long time ago for the reality of most life. It's a blip in time. But anyways, um, whenever I saw videos or articles about the outdoors, I, and I saw people using high-tech equipment while calling what they were doing bushcraft, my blood would boil. I would get so frustrated. And I would even say to anyone who had to hear my vitriol, that's not freaking bushcraft. I feel so, again, this is what I cringe about, was how agitated I would get about that kind of stuff in the past. But maybe to a degree I was right, and maybe to a broader degree, I was woefully ignorant. I wasn't really thinking. I had this purist mentality and we see purist mentalities all through bushcraft and all through every kind of style that's related to each other and every craft you look at purists that are into magic the gathering or dungeons and dragons you look at purists in the metal music genre you look at 
frankly, anything, you're going to have gatekeeping and you're also going to have cringeworthy, you know, stuff going on. Just cringy. A lot of people see my involvement in bushcraft as fairly recent, including me. I've only been involved in it for 20 years or so. And no, that's not sarcasm. That's not me being facetious, flippant, or any other fancy word I could look up in a thesaurus. I mean that genuinely. I've been doing this for over 20 years. And I still don't think that's a long time. Like, as a youth, I revered the words of who I often called the old guard of survival and bushcraft. People like Larry Dean Olson, Morris Kohansky, Gino Ferry, uh, Colonel Townsend Whalen, Nesmuk, Roycroft, Keppert, or Keffert, and other people who had been doing this stuff for either 40 years before I joined the subculture or people who had been long dead before I was even born. To me, even today, I am just a learner. My desire to teach was born from a fear of this stuff going the way of the dodo. And frankly, that was a very egocentric consideration as are many opinions of our younger selves. As many of you are probably painfully aware, bushcraft, survival skills, ancestral skills, and all other subgenres of the subject are more popular now than ever. I've got friends who can't stand camping, giving me advice they learned from the show alone. I've met folks that have never seen a real piece of flint in person explain to me their fascination with flint mapping TikToks and YouTube videos. The subculture has exploded onto the mainstream via TV shows like Survivor Man, Naked and Afraid, and Alone, as well as YouTube channels of fellas in shorts building, falsely, mind you, massive uh, structures in the subtropics of Southeast Asia. You know the channels I'm talking about. So my whole reason to begin teaching was embarrassingly unnecessary. And yet, as it was my passion and I had to make ends meet, here I am anyways, teaching it. This is this was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> um, this is kind of getting away from what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to explain my perspective and where I was coming from. So anyways, the point I'm trying to make is, I was young and naive and under the tutelage of books and mentors that did more with less and balked at the ideas of modern technology. Or so I thought. This purist mentality was cemented in me by many observations. You got to remember, my learning of this craft was beginning around the time of Y2K. Not a lot of internet websites, internet websites, not a lot of websites in general. YouTube hasn't even existed yet all that kind of stuff. There's like survival.com with Ron Hood and his lovely wife, Karen. Um, there's primitiveways.com, which was the society of primitive technology kind of online, uh, newsletters, all that kind of beautiful websites, but that was it. That, that was really all there was. And then chat rooms and message boards. But at that time it was the technology that <clears throat> made it, you know, a little more uncomfortable to trust. Flashlights were weak in power and they were short-lived. Civilian GPS units, uh, they were spotty at best. Portable power systems like Dynamo and Solar that could handle the rigors of backwoods and backcountry life were honestly in their infancy. Tech was fragile, it was undependable, and it was, to be frank, bulky. More so, it took away the point of bushcraft to do more with less. 
The spirit of bushcraft is driven by our desire to reconnect with the land in one way or another without the trappings of the modern world. Why bring all these tents that held condensation and made your bag heavy when a debris hut was feasible? Why carry lighters when I could rub sticks together? Why carry a modern first aid kit when the land can provide medicine? Hell, why carry freeze-dried backpacking food when I could live it rich on the fat of the land? This is what all of those old guard who I practically worshipped espoused, right? Right? Well, maybe not. Gino carried ferro rods and modern first aid. Kohansky developed the super shelter with space-age materials. Even when you look back at the old-timers at the turn of the 20th century and beyond, they were frequently getting with the times. Whalen carried nylon tarps and was praising the newest advances in footwear, tents, and other kit coming from L.L. Bean and Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, those were once outdoor gear, outdoors gear companies. <laughs> Nesmuk was always advancing his own philosophies regarding smoothing it. He was going as ultralight as he could, even though the people of the time, he, he hated pack baskets, which, like, I can, I can jive with that, but I also don't agree with that. Like, I, I get where he's coming from, but I disagree. But again, that's a personal opinion. We're going to get into personal opinion. Don't worry. Um, but he was having ultralight canoes. He was carrying ditty bags and haversacks instead of what everybody else took into the backwoods, like the Adirondack baskets, the pack baskets of their time. <clears throat> and what of new findings? I haven't taught the debris hut since 2017 when we began finding deer ticks on our students. The friction fire to me is a cool thing to practice, but never to depend on. And I'm of the mind that I carry en that if I can carry enough redundant lighters in my person to never have to spin a coal out of a hearthboard again, the better off I'm going to be. Yes, I can boil water with hot stones in a coal-burned log, but man, is it easier with a steel, aluminum, or titanium pot. Indigenous people across the North change their culture at the material level with the introduction of steel, calico, linen, and sheep wool. Times have changed. And so do we toss out the old ways and carry the top of the line of modern amenities? Are ancient ways obsolete? Well, if you listen to our last episode, again, episode 110, The Riddle of Steel, I'm sure you can already guess my answer to that question. No. Those old ways have their place. They have their value. And frankly, they are necessary to perfect your skills with bushcraft. Sure, I can carry paracord for every occasion. I can have purple paracord. I can have glow-in-the-dark paracord. I can have light-up paracord when my flashlight hits it. I can have paracord that's got, for some reason, tinder and snare wire and fishing line inside of it. Never really understood that one. Again, that's maybe that's a gimmick. Maybe that's modern technology, and I'm just being a bit of a purist. I don't know. But stripping a one-inch wide strip of basswood bark to lash, you know, some salmon steaks or a piece of roast meat or roasting meat uh, to a cooking pole is a lot easier. Didn't cost me anything. And I can sacrifice it to the flames of the fire without polluting my food. So we need to figure out a balance. And this is going to be, I'm, I'm considering this is going to be a very short episode as this is basically how everything that I've kind of mapped out so far for this episode. The rest of this, I'm going to be totally winging it. These were from my notes and my considerations, what I've been kind of writing down in my journal over the last few days and probably about a week and a half now. 
we got to figure out a balance. And it all comes down to what is practical, what is durable, what is dependable. And if it fits those three things for me, I'll consider it. And what will win me over is the fourth consideration. Does it make my time out there more pleasant or more comfortable? Or dare I say, easier? So what kind of technology do I take with me? Obviously modern materials. I have a parachute quality nylon hammock with very, very nice under quilt and top quilt and bug net and uh, tarps and cord and special webbing that allows me to wrap it around a tree without damaging the bark, all the while being able to hold my gargantuan butt up off the ground. I carry steel knives that have my car to handles. I carry cook stoves, whether they're gas powered stoves or twig powered stoves, whatever. I carry stoves. People didn't carry stoves 150 years ago, except for actual, you know, wood burning stoves and for heating a tent or heating a shelter. And sometimes they brought like a billy boiler, which was just like almost like a charcoal brazier, but they weren't carrying, you know, gas stoves, things like that very frequently. It wasn't common at least. And so I carry modern amenities. My first aid kit, top notch top notch like mm, it is mm, perfect i love it could do with a few more things but i really like what's in there and i have things in there that are like non-stick gauze so that when i take the gauze off of the wound i don't rip the scab away and all the blood clots and start the bleeding again i've got gels in there that help soothe burns better than water can i have modern amenities of antibiotic ointments I have shears, paramedic shears that can cut through copper, let alone cut through your pant leg to let me see how badly you injured your leg when you fell into that beaver dam riddled with sharp pointy sticks. I have all those kinds of things in my first aid kit. I have a cell phone that I take with me camping, either to communicate with my home and make sure everyone here is okay and the dogs are okay, the ducks are okay, the cats are okay, the kid is okay, but also... In case I want to scroll and check some stuff out in the news. I don't really have social media much anymore. I think we have like the formal company social media. And that's, I guess I'll scroll on there once in a rare while if I have reception, but that's not what I go on there for. I'm scrolling through the news, checking things out, making sure the weather's good. I'm going on to check uh, our times and dates for things that are coming up. But I'm also just like, sometimes I just sit there and scroll through photos of previous trips. Or what I saw that day and I snapped a photo or took a video of. I'm just checking things out. It's got a flashlight on it. It has a decent GPS. Decent, not perfect, but decent GPS system in it. And I have all these other amenities I bring with me. I bring a flashlight. Because compared to the flashlights, I, I inherited my father's old police flashlight. It was a big old 1990s uh, mag light. Big honking thing massive thing and takes two D cell batteries, which like you say that to someone today, but a flashlight taking D cell batteries and their eyes start to roll back like the undertaker, or like a shark. They just are like, what? And they start losing their mind. <clears throat> and the other night we need to go put the birds to bed. Couldn't find a headlamp at the time. And I was trying to get out there before it got any buggier. 
So I just grabbed my dad's old mag light, turned on the light. Oh, it's just a very faint amber glow. Okay, must be the batteries are dying. Swapped out the batteries, had some D cells in the in the uh, cupboard, in the hallway cupboard. Open them up, put them into the flashlight, turn the flashlight back on. Same brightness of light. Look at the bulb, check it out. No, it's not dimming. It's not burning out. That is the candle wattage, like the candle power of that, of that flashlight. It was so dim, so dim. And I went out with that and I was like, man, this is what it was like back in the nineties. This is what it was like back in the two thousands. Now we have like lumens in the thousands in a flashlight that fits in your like coin pocket. I can tuck, I've got a BioLite uh, 330 BioLite. I got like three or four of them in the house because we just, I like them in all my kit. I really dig that flashlight, that headlamp. Um, Olight, Streamlight, there's so many good brands in there. I'm not just saying that BioLite is good, but I carry the BioLite headlamps. And they fit in like the little tiny tool pocket on my Carhartts. Like in that little pocket that like most tools don't even fit in. <clears throat> and yet it holds its power for hours. And it's so bright, so bright. <laughs> technology is not the enemy. here, And that's what I, I really want to get going on this is like technology has its place. We just need to understand that it has to be dependable, durable, practical. And if it fits all three of those, it better make my life easier or comfortable or whatever term you want to use to smooth it instead of rough it. That's where I look at bringing modern technology in. Modern technology has its place. I benefit from modern technology. The, my ancestors, the Anishinaabek, when they first made contact with the French traders, traded with the French because they had things like wool blankets and linen, which means we didn't have to tan furs to stay warm for the winter. We could just get this fabric immediately. There was a person who asked, uh, I'm not sure what post it was, whether it was a TikTok we did or an Instagram post or something like that. And they asked, why did people ever stop using these things? Oh, it was, uh, I, I did a video a post online about making curly dock seeds into flour for making bread. And somebody said, why do we ever walk away from this? I'm like, because it takes a lot of work. It took me all day to harvest all that curly dock seed and get it dried and, and picked out of leaves and stems and everything else, and then grind it to just make two small loaves of bread. It was a lot of work and most of us have nine to five jobs. So we, we, if, if we can take the opportunity to get something easier, we'll do it. And I am not going to ever fault anybody for doing that. If it makes your life easier, do it. And so that kind of perspective, you look at the trade networks, it's not that blanket wool or wool blankets or linen were superior to smoke tanned hides and furs and finger woven fabrics from the Americas, basswood clothing, uh, dog bane clothing, all that kind of stuff. There's like, yeah, we had fabrics at contact. Not everybody when the European settlers got here were wearing just animal hides. Many of them were wearing woven clothing. We were not shocked or mystified 
by canvas and linen and calico. We just liked it because we didn't have to make it. Same reason the trade networks exist is we don't have to make those things. We can get them imported to us and we can do things with them. We just got to send our finished goods to them. And so technology's always been advancing. That's that's what we look at, that, that it's a beneficial thing to a degree. And this is like, I was talking about science fiction and this strange dichotomy I notice. When you watch science fiction, whether it's the Orville or something from Isaac Asimov or something like that, you'll see either one of, you'll see two options of dichotomy or duality, meaning there's four options in total. Either old, natural made things, old timey things are quaint, naive, obsolete and kind of pitiful and technology is amazing astounding modern technology and and the high-tech things that we have in the future in these science fiction stories are astounding amazing uh, marvels of their worlds and change the face of the universe and make society so much better or Nature and old-timey things, the the back-to-the-land movement, are beautiful and perfect and sustainable and, and balanced. And technology and modern amenities are going to lead to our demise. It could be the Kalons from Orville, or it could be the Yuzhan Vong from Star Wars in the non-canonic Star Wars and the Legends, I guess it is now. Uh, it could be the Borg from Star Trek. Or it could be Star Trek Insurrection, where people that want to live a quaint, harmless life on the landscape are beautiful and poetic and perfect. Avatar. Not the last airbender, the other Avatar, the James Cameron Avatar, is a perfect example of this, where the humans with their modern amenities and their modern technology must invade and take all this land from the indigenous populace the Navic, Navi, Navi, something like that. Um, the blue people who are so connected to the world by sticking their hair tentacle thing into other animals, tentacle things and somehow completely connect. And like, there's that dichotomy, there's that duality, but it's also kind of a paradox in of itself. We, we need to accept that both can be true. Both perspectives of the four perspectives, all four can be true at the same time. Technology and modern amenities and modern advancements and sciences can be devastating and destructive. TNT, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, when they got hit by the A-bombs, that, that, that was destructive as hell. That was the horrors that have come from that, that are still being dealt with in those regions today. Chernobyl, Fukushima. At the same time, we have the most peaceful period of human life and the longest lifespans on record. On record. We, we don't know for sure how long people could live thousands of years ago, but from the bones we found for the majority of them, they died early ages. 
Like if you made it to your eighties, you were considered like the elders elder for many regions of the world, starvation, famine, in other words, uh, cannibalism, cataclysmic destruction would lead to just people losing all ways of life. A simple disease. Let's not get into that conversation these days. Uh, but yeah, polio, smallpox, things that we can treat today or vaccinate against. We're wiping people out just a couple of generations ago. And so when we look at both sides of the story, technology, modern technology and advancement in sciences is not always evil or phenomenal. It's somewhere in between at the same time, both. On the other side of the spectrum, <clears throat> we know how enriching it is to get back out on the land with minimal equipment and live on the land. You talk to people who live making their own bows, homesteading, hunting their own food, trapping their own food, harvesting their own food, and building their own homes and making their own clothing. Whatever direction, however, wherever extreme you want to go with it, they often describe having feeling more full in life and happy. At the same time, we can't deny that people died by the thousands without the modern amenities we have today. And it is foolish of us to think that us who can't remember how to flint nap, remember, the majority of us do not know how to flint nap. And we may know how to break rocks to get them sharp even, but that's still not things like Donnie Dust and uh, Ryan Gill, I think is his name. All these amazing flint nappers, Dan Long down in the Niagara area. These amazing flint nappers that are they're doing and our ancestors, all of our ancestors were doing compared to today. We don't know how to make those things. And so we have to remember, we it's not a static perspective. There is constantly a dynamic flow of this spectrum of ancestral skills and modern amenities. And if you can marry the two, the better off you're going to be, the more happy you're going to be. A good analogy is the Mokotagan or the crooked knife. You can refer to our episode on that back in the winter. Uh, and I talked about them briefly ish on the last episode. <clears throat> the original crooked knives were made out of beaver's teeth and moose rib bones and maybe copper, maybe copper. When iron and steel came along, indigenous people adopted it. They adopted the steel, whether they were in the Hiawak, Meshkegawak, Iu, Inu, Mi'kmaq, or sorry, Ilnu, um, Maliseet, Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenape, adopted that and took steel. And they were taking steel from like iron bands off of barrels and like pieces of wagon wheels and whatever metal they can, whatever steel or iron they could get from wherever and make these beautiful exquisite blades that could be very simple and to some people very crude looking and be able to build a birch bark canoe. That marrying of traditional style of how the handles are shaped, what the blade geometry looks like, just translate into steel. We can do that with a lot of our technologies. 
this marrying of ancient and modern, I think is what makes me really love bushcraft, really love it. And so when I started off, I was this purist who, yeah, I saw some photos of me from some of the first classes I taught and I was wearing a big wide brim leather hat and I had buckskin pants on. I was wearing moccasins and I was always trying to do things with stone tools. And I appreciate those moments, but I also really appreciate a good pair of sturdy work boots and, and hiking boots and hunting boots. And I really appreciate Gore-Tex for certain applications. And I really appreciate tin cloth, which is still a kind of older style of clothing, but can work really well in modern day. You look at like the Fjall Raven pants, a lot of people get, they'll get what's called Greenland wax. And it's because there's certain parts that are a cotton mix uh, fabric and you just rub and warm this wax onto those fabrics and suddenly they're waterproof and fairly durable. Cool. That that's a great marrying. Whereas the other parts are like spandex or something like that. I don't know because Fjall Raven does not make pants in my size. Cause I am the size of a rotund woolly mammoth, but I've seen people with these pants. <laughs> uh, you look at modern knives like we have some of the most exquisite steels today people want to talk about ancient steels at the japanese and the viking era and all that kind of stuff 5160 which is not even in like a modern steel like space age steel that's a pretty old style carbon steel for for the americas that's been around for at least a century i believe now <coughs> But I would, I would carry a 5160 steel knife any day of the week before I carry a knife from the Viking era. Not the style. I might want a Viking era or Viking age style knife, like a, Sa a Saks or Sax. Totally. I like them. I like them a lot. Uh, but I want them made of 5160 or uh, 1095 or ABSL 5000 purple fire hydrant. Whatever code systems we have now have crucible steels and powdered steels those kinds of steels today are superior because our metallurgy is better now. It just is. The techniques may not be better of, of shaping the steel. Maybe we still want to do it the old school blacksmithing way. Like I do, but I use modern steels. <clears throat> and so we can look at these perspectives and evolve our bushcraft and get away from gatekeeping and purist attitudes. Or maybe they have some benefit. And I think a lot of what I did in my past was gatekeeping. I, I, I truly think it was gatekeeping and it was negative. It was um, othering. It was harmful to people. And I think it kind of put me into this like perspective of being very uh, judgmental. And that's not who I want to be. I want to be a kind, thoughtful person. I'm always trying to consider how I can be more kind and more thoughtful to my students, to my colleagues, <clears throat> to the person down the street, to my neighbor, to strangers. But I think we're gatekeeping. My gatekeeping came from the perspective that was causing it has some merit. I have seen a lot of people go camping that have no skills 
they just rely on their gear. And I think Cody Lundin in 98.6 degrees, you keeping your ass alive, gave a really good analogy of it's a person who's diving with a scuba tank. They are, they rely on that scuba tank. That scuba tank is going to be what keeps them alive. What happens when the scuba tank fails or they don't know how to use the scuba tank though. And I know a lot of people that go camping and bring a survival manual with them. They're like, well, I'll just read it when I'm out there. You don't want to learn how to swim when the ship is sinking. Again, to quote Cody Lundin. And I quote him because they're really good lines. I wish I invented them. I, I wish I made those lines up. <clears throat> you don't want to learn to swim when the ship is sinking. You, you don't want to have to rely on just the equipment, especially when that equipment can and does fail. I've had on multiple camping trips, water filters fail on somebody. And that was the filter that everybody was depending on. And so everybody had to resort to water disinfection tablets, uh, chloroflock or micropure, anything like that. Aquatabs, you know, and that slows down this, the ingestion of water because you have to wait for that water to then be disinfected. It takes anywhere from 30 minutes to freaking eight hours, depending on what you're dealing with. And so that slows things down, makes it more, you know, less pleasant. And so we get back into that discussion of durable, dependable, practical makes my life easier. Modern filters, again, <clears throat> water filters from my generation's upbringing, water filters were fragile and they were hard to maintain and you had to replace the filters really frequently. <clears throat> Modern day filters are 0.1 micron at like 20 bucks. A cheap mini Sawyer is a 0.1 micron filter. The life straw, which I hate life straws within a certain point. We maybe, I think I've talked about it in our uh, wild water episode, but in general, because I find that they don't work in the more murky waters that you're probably going to come across in swamp lands and backwoods areas, uh, maybe in a clear flowing Creek. Sure. But not in a big mucky puddle. They don't work as well. They need a pre-filter for that. And then just laying in the muck, sucking at a tube, trying to build up enough back pressure to draw that water up. doesn't work so great. But those filters can be backwashed to clean them out. You can backwash them to get rid of all the grit and gunk that built up in the filter. A lot of these modern filters are not made of things that are fragile. They can, some of them can even survive being frozen and still hold their 0.1 micron uh, filtration level. You would never in my generation let something like a MSR Sweetwater or an MSR Waterworks get frozen. A catadine filter that costs like 900 bucks, you definitely did not let that thing get frozen. But the modern day ones, maybe. Depends on the brand. Depends on what they, they, they have on their market research and stuff. Or not mar their scientific research. Market research. You can tell it's after one in the morning. I'm tired and my brain's going mushy. But when it comes down to looking at all these considerations of technology, traditional skills, where does it lie? Where do we evolve? Where do we gatekeep or maybe not gatekeep, but get very, um, wh where do we not change it up? There's some things that just work. So don't fix it. 
wooden canoe paddles. Like across the board, wooden canoe paddles. I think they are superior. And I'm sure people are going to be writing in about how carbon fiber paddles are stronger, lighter, yada, 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 yada. I prefer wooden paddles. Because if I damage the edge of the blade, I can fix it with my knife. If I split it down the middle, I can stitch it back together with bailing wire, spruce roots, and a little bit of spruce gum. I can make a paddle. I can make a paddle. I can't make carbon fiber in the backwoods. I remember when one of the guys that I used to guide with up in Algonquin Park, their canoe, it was Royal X which at the time was like the space age material you wanted your canoe to be made of Royal X light, but durable had enough air pockets within it that it couldn't easily sink. Even if it got swamped, so you had time to bail the canoe before it started to hit the bottom, all that kind of stuff. He, he damaged a Royal X canoe. He hit a rock in a certain way that it actually caused the Royal X to tear. And so he sat there with his Leatherman, I think it was a wave, one of the, the, one of the first iterations of the, of the Leatherman wave. And he used the awl and bored holes in the canoe and did gore stitching like we do on birch bark canoes with spruce root. And then he just mashed together a bunch of spruce gum and stuck it back together. And it worked, but not as well as if it would have been an actual birch bark canoe. It was very difficult to get that. They had to bail as they were paddling. They didn't have to bail as frequently, but they had to bail. And so we, we, am I saying here that birch bark canoes are superior to Royal X? No. And sadly, Royal X doesn't exist anymore. So it's kind of a moot point anyways. Um, we, we have these opportunities to carry traditional gear because we like it. I like wooden paddles. I like a wooden cup. I like having a wooden spoon with me when I'm camping. Yeah, I can carry titanium sporks and a titanium GSI oil cam or whatever brand cup. All a cam, oil cam, I can't remember what they're called. Um, I can carry one of their titanium cups. I can carry all those things. And yeah, it lightens my load, makes my life easier. They're durable. They're dependable. They're practical. They do make my life easier because it's lighter in the pack, but I like my wooden cup. I like my wooden spoon. And there's certain points of practicality. Uh, years back, a couple of buddies of, of mine and I, I and I went on a canoe trip and while we're loading our gear, the one asked, Hey, do you got room in your pack for this cast iron frying pan? And I said, hell no, I am not portaging cast iron our ancestors and even not our ancestors. When I was an out, when I was working for an outfitter in a summer camp in Algonquin park, sometimes we carry cast iron. You look at some of the Wanigans that some people take with them on trips through Tomogamy and Wabakimi, they have cast iron in there and that's fine because they like it. They like using that. I don't like carrying it. So I can't justify it. And that's not a modern amenity. That's a fairly ancient technology. Cast iron has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the Americas, a couple hundred years at least. And so that's old fashioned. That's old timey, but I'm not caring because it's damn heavy. 
I'll take it car camping. I'll take it to a base camp. I'll take it to a hunt camp where we're driving in and getting to a location by machine. If we're pack animal uh, camping, like I had pack llamas or pack, pack mules or pack horses. Yeah. Maybe I will bring one or two Dutch ovens and a cast iron skillet and a cast iron kettle. Maybe I will. But if it's going on my back, hell no, that's not happening. And so we've got to, again, find this kind of, what are you willing to do? So what, what kind of modern gear do I have with me that are like tech, techy things that I bring with me? My BioLite headlamps. I usually have two of them because I always like to have a redundancy with light. Uh, the last thing I want to have is this one's battery fail or it runs out of juice right in the middle of me walking back from the latrine that might be a hundred yards from my camp. That's going to suck. I'm going to get my eye poked at least once. So I carry two. They're rechargeable and they're ultra light and they don't feel like there's a bunch of bulk on my forehead. They, I, I forget all the time that they're on me. But I have to charge them. So I bring a power bank. That power bank, unlike bringing a flashlight that's got batteries, which is the way of my upbringing, <coughs> as we were talking about with my dad's mag light and everything else, the, the, the beauty of the power bank is I can also charge my cell phone. I can charge, I've got a little, I don't take it with me very often anymore, but I do have a uh, radio, not like a communication radio, but like a FM radio, AM FM. And I have that with me to check weather, uh, to check if there's been something like a disaster. If I hear weird noises at night or during the daytime, like a sounds like a plane going by really loud, I can turn on the local news or local radio station and be like, oh, there was been a wildfire nearby. And I'll be like, oh, okay, we are reeling in our rods and we're pulling the canoes in because there might be a water bomber coming by. Things like that. I can, I can use that radio for that. And that radio, it's a nice little cheap one I got off of, I think, Amazon or something like that. And... It's a rechargeable by plugging into my power bank, but it also has a dynamo crank, which means I can charge it myself. But the cool thing is it also has a port that allows me to plug in my phone and it's not going to, you know, take it to full charge in 10 minutes. But if I'm at my last couple of percents of battery life and I need to get this text, I'm like, Hey, there's been an emergency. We're coming out. We're on the portage now. Can you meet us at the car lot or the parking lot? Uh, I can do that by charging it while my text is trying to go through the clouds and the can tree canopy. I can crank that for a few minutes and give it enough juice to get that message out. So that when we get onto the portage and get to the parking lot, there might be somebody waiting for us. I can get a 911 call out because I got that last little bit of juice pumped into my phone. So that's a nifty little piece of gadget. I don't take it frequently, but it's something I will take on the occasional longer trip. Add the fact that as much as I, like I, we, we did a music episode, I think about a year ago or more <clears throat> for a reason. Music is the soul of humans. It's, it's a, it's an international language. Everybody sings. And so even if you don't understand the words, you can enjoy songs. And people tell me all the time, I can't understand them. I don't enjoy that. Rammstein. A bunch of the TikTok songs. Bunch of you are watching TikTok these days. I know you are because I see you. I see your channels. I see your comments. I see your likes. And some of those comments are mean. Stop being mean on the internet. Jeez. But when it comes down to 
where am I trying to go with this? <sighs> Got on a tangent there, as I usually do. When it comes down to these technologies and it comes down to our ability to communicate and, and music, like, yeah, I can have someone bring out their ukulele and their harmonica and their guitar. I know people that go on long backcountry trips with a full-sized acoustic guitar. And like the occasional strumming by the fire, I don't mind that. I, I dig it. Somebody wants to sing Kumbaya, I'm out. I'm checking out. But uh, if they want to sing something like Cat in the Fiddle or anything like that, yeah. Yeah, I'll sit back and listen to a couple of songs. But if they s play that guitar for like an hour or two every night, I'm going Animal House by day like five or six. If someone's playing a harmonica every single night and it's like the same three damn songs, it's getting chucked. Or at least I'm wanting to chuck it. I may not chuck because I do respect people's personal property and everything else, but I may want to chuck it into the lake, to the deepest parts of the lake where Cthulhu or Kachiname or somebody like that is going to come across that thing and destroy it for me because it's going to piss me off by like day five or six. It's going to piss me off. But I can turn on the radio and I can listen to a couple of different songs a night. It's always going to be a little bit different. I might hear some, you know, Beach Boys. The next minute might be Queen. The next minute might be some hip hop. The next minute might be something a little bit harder. Lord help me, it's country western. I'm, I love all genres and I have respect for all genres, including country western. I don't like country western. <laughs> Modern country western. I love Johnny Cash. I love Willie Nelson. All that kind of stuff from the old days. Chris Christopher, uh, Chris Christopherson. All that kind of stuff. I like that. I love the blues. I love bluegrass. I love it all. And the beauty of radio is I can, if I don't like a song, I can change it. If I've heard that song already today, I can change it. So if I need to hear some music and I'm out there on my own, A, I can't hold a tune to save my life. <clears throat> I'm not instrumentally inclined. I can't play the guitar. I've practiced the harmonica for most of my adolescence and adulthood. I still can't play the harmonica. And maybe that's where all that comes from, just pent-up angst, because other people can do it. You son of a gun. You can play the damn guitar. I can't play the guitar. Maybe that's where it's coming from. I don't know. But if Dave Grohl's on the radio, I'm going to listen to Dave Grohl. I can tell you that. And so that radio has some benefits to me beyond just being a news radio. It can play some music. I can check in with the weather. I can check in if there's an emergency that's going on around me. But I can also charge things with it because that dynamo uh crank and yeah i say dynamo i'm sure it's pronounced dynamo but i just say dynamo because dynamic that's just who i am get over it but it's not going to charge my phone all the way and it's definitely not going to replenish my power bank so i carry a small folding solar panel yeah, I carry a solar panel because I often camp on rocky terrain in the Canadian Shield. So I'm going to find areas that don't have a thick canopy. So it makes sense to bring a small solar panel. Mine's an older generation uh, Gold Zero Nomad 7. The newer ones look a lot nicer and they look like they pack down a lot nicer. Mine's more rigid. It flips open almost like a binder. 
uh, with a little flap on it, and it's just two panels. And you can tuck your power bank into this mesh pocket that's got a zipper on the back. You plug it directly into the cables that are right there, and I can charge my power bank up. At the same time, I can also be charging one of my headlamps. And as long as there's sunlight and we're staying stationary, I'm charging stuff. And while we're on the move, as long as I don't have a canoe on, on my head, if we're hiking or backpacking, I can have that panel out on my pack. And it can be charging along as we walk and getting me a little bit of trickle charging effect into my headlamp. So there's a benefit to it to me. Is it durable? Yeah, I've carried it for six years now, I believe, maybe seven. Uh, six, I think six years. <coughs> And it's been on pretty much every trip and it's been beat to hell and it's still holding up and still charging stuff. It's been out in some of the worst weather you can imagine and it's still working. So is it durable? Yeah. Is it practical? Yeah. For the most part, because of where I camp, if I was in deep jungle, I probably won't be trying to rely on a solar panel. It just probably won't work unless I can find like select spots that are open in the canopy, which is pretty rare in a good fully developed jungle just not going to happen uh if i'm out in the plains or the badlands yeah solar panels all the way bring one with you if i'm in the deep boreal forest like muskeg country and deep deep boreal maybe maybe not it depends on where we're going to be it depends on what the maps are telling me the terrain is telling me from the topographical maps but that's an option the power bank is it durable the one i bought is is it dependable? Yeah, I've used it for at least four years now and I haven't had any problems charging it up and then being able to charge my phone like a dozen times off of it. It's it's perfect. Are my headlamps durable? Yeah, for the most part, I would say they're durable. I have four of them, not because I want like, uh, I'm where one of them is going to break. I have four because I want one in this room. I want one in this pack. I want one in this pocket. I want this one that I can just go out to check the ducks every night. So I have different ones all over the place and they're color coded. One's teal blue, one's black, one's gray, one's red. So I know which one goes in what kit and I know where it's supposed to be. And I can charge them all up and they're good. And then I just recharge them as I'm out in the bush. All those components are good. They're, they're durable, they're dependable, they're practical. Do they make my life easier? For the most part, yeah. Now I have access to my phone. Now I have access to my radio. Is the radio durable? Yeah. Is it dependable? Yeah. Is it practical? I think so. For most trips, sometimes it's not. If I'm just going on an overnight, I don't really think I need to bring a radio. Uh, I don't need music to, to quiet the night for me. It's nice to have once in a while, and I'll play a couple of jams here and there, but then I'm just going to turn it off and just relax to the sounds of nature. I don't need to crank it up and make it sound like there's a dance party happening in the backwoods. It all just comes down to what is practical for me at that time. I want news reports. I want weather reports. I want to know if there's an emergency happening. And every once in a while, I want to hear some tunes just to, you know, quiet the tinnitus in my right ear or something. And it comes with a head, a headphones jack so I can bring like a couple of little earbuds and not bother anybody else. I can just be hanging in my hammock made of modern material hanging under a tarp made of modern material with a bug net made of modern material warmed by under quilts and top quilts made of modern material. And I'm comfortable and I'm cozy and I'm listening to Rammstein on the radio. Probably not. There's not a lot of good radio stations that play that kind of stuff in the backwoods, but <clears throat> I digress. There's been a lot of digressions or digressions, digressions. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, on this episode because this is more of a, like a conversation that's one-sided 
my perspectives from my background and looking at these cringy moments where I was, you have to be a purist. You have to do it old school. You have to do it this way, this way. I, I vividly remember like griping that night vision. If you let your peripheral vision, your splatter vision, whatever you call it, build up and practice with it, you can see just as well as you can with a flashlight. And I said that and a moment later jammed a branch into my throat and like pierced my throat, not into my actual esophagus or windpipe, but like stuck it in my neck and like drew blood. Like I said that in front of like 15 people. I remember that. And I tried to play it off with like, well, your lights were on for a second. So my eyes didn't adjust in time. No, I was being a jackass. Headlamps and flashlights have their place. Shut up, Caleb. <laughs> like these are those cringy moments I remember. And we all have them. It's part of being human. When you're younger, you have this Dunning-Kruger effect happening where you know a little and it makes you really confident. And then you fail and your confidence gets blown out the window and you crash in confidence. And then over time, skills, training, and experience build up your actual experience level. Actual life experience makes experience happen. I know it's, it's, it's world shattering to hear that. but your confidence stays lower. I'm a lot more confident with like specific things that I know that I've spent my entire life doing. I get there. There's very few moments where I hear somebody's advice when I'm in the middle of doing something that it actually gets me mad. There's very few things that do that. And I think the, the one thing I had this conversation with a friend about a month ago, maybe less than a month ago where I find it very frustrating when I'm chopping wood and I hear somebody that maybe cuts a cord of wood a year with a chainsaw and then bucks it and splits it either with a splitting mall or a mechanical wood splitter. Give me advice on chopping wood with an ax, with a regular ax, not a splitting mall, not a mechanical wood splitter, not a wood buster number one or wood chopper number one with the mechanisms and the lever wedging effect just a straight blade or straight style keen cutter true temper kelly works plum whatever axe grandsfurs wetterlings husqvarna whatever using that axe and chopping things down and bucking it up and splitting it up and i get to hear somebody that rarely ever uses an axe ever tell me how to swing that axe. And I think that's, it's definitely my ego. I have a lot of ego around my axe skills because I have spent my entire life swinging an axe and I've spent my entire life trying to perfect my axe skills and listening to genuine experts and watching and observing how they use axes and mimicking them and practicing it and modifying my techniques with their concepts and their techniques to this day if i know that there's someone that knows axes as well as me or better than me i shut up and i watch them and even someone that's like like less skilled than me i'll watch them i'll shut up and i'll watch and observe what they do things how they do things because you never know <clears throat> but when someone openly admits that they barely ever use an axe and I use an axe, if not daily, at least three to four times a week. 
and I'm not talking like to snip a couple of branches, cut a couple of little poles. I'm bucking firewood. I'm splitting firewood. I'm dropping trees with an axe all the time because either the chainsaw is out of gas or I haven't had a chance to get it maintained or it's just an awkward position to be running a chainsaw, but it's not as awkward of a position to be swinging an axe in, or I just want to use my axe because it's what I grew up using. Cause I, up until 2013, like mind you, I've been running Canadian bushcraft since 2008. So at least five years at that point, Canadian bushcraft didn't have a chainsaw. Occasionally my, my previous partner, business partner, not relationship partner, uh, business partner, Lucas would bring a chainsaw once in a while when we had to get a bunch of work done, but that was once in a while, not every time. It wasn't until 2013 that I got a chainsaw for myself because I was broke. I'd never had money growing up. My parents like were well-to-do. They were middle-class. They were a uh, white collar job and a police officer. My mother being a teacher, my father being, uh, I say white collar, the term white collar, blue collar still confused the hell out of me because I never wore a collar. I think that's what confused me the most about it. Mom was a teacher. Dad was a cop. We weren't poor, but when I wanted to get my own gear, I had to find jobs and earn the money and save the money up. And when I started up my company, I was like two years out of high school, a year and a half out of high school. When I started, I was 20, I was 20 years old when I started Canadian bushcraft, 20 years old. I'm 34 now. Yeah. Yeah. That adds up 14 years. And I immediately, as soon as I was done working for other companies and doing things for them, working as a guide, working as a cook, all that kind of stuff, I started Canadian bushcraft. I had no damn money. I had no money. When you work as a guide up in the north, like you work for a summer camp, I'm I'm not trying to discredit summer camps or dissuade anybody from working at summer camps because there's a lot of beautiful experiences there. But a lot of them take you for a ride when it comes down to getting paid, to be frank. Like minimum wage, you wish. At least back when I was guiding. And so... I came into Canadian bushcraft. I had enough money. I, I had 90% of the money to pay for the business license. And it's like 80 bucks for slow proprietorship in Ontario. No idea if that's the same in the case now, uh, but it was 80 bucks. I had 90% of that money. I had to borrow like five bucks from my mother to get the license to start my company. That's how broke I was back then. So I didn't have a chainsaw. I had an axe. I had two axes and I loved those axes and I used those axes all the live long day and I used them hard and I used them well. And I've been using an axe since I was eight. Again, I'm 34 now. Don't ask me to do the math on that. <laughs> uh, 24, 26 years, 26 years using an axe. If, if not daily, at least three to four times a week every single week for for 26 years if my math is right again it's like quarter to two in the morning at this point um and so that's one of the few things that i get ego like egotistical about because i know my confidence level that's not done in kruger and this is another one of those tangents that has nothing to do with what the conversation is tonight um 
but this is like to me an important like point of like I remember those moments where I was naive. I remember those moments when I was arrogant. I remember those moments when I would say something with utmost confidence as the as a word of God. Like it's the word of God that I'm saying right now. And I look at it now and I go, oh man, that wasn't even the word of Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> that wasn't even the word of Gomer Pyle. That wasn't even the word of Yosemite Sam. That that was an idiot talking. And I think those are beneficial. It keeps me humble a hundred percent, but also it gives me a chance to look at where I've come from and where I'm going and my perspectives. I think this is the most important part of this conversation. Yeah. I'm calling uh, talking about it being all about technology, but it's about, it's about, I don't know. It, it, it's about looking back to look forward, I guess. And this is jumping back to that knowledge first episode, which is like episode seven or eight or 10 from the podcast. Like we're on episode 110 right now. And that's from back then. And that's mind blowing to me that we, we've gone this far. Every time it gets brought up, I'm astounded. And we appreciate every single one of you for tuning in, by the way, if you haven't gotten the gist of that, every episode ending with me, just thanking you and, and, pouring out my heart and soul and loving all of you I, we do we we really appreciate you guys and i don't want to make that sound patronizing or make it sound like we just want you to keep watching or listening we really appreciate this ryan i everybody with the podcast crew canadian bush guy from general we really appreciate all of you you're all amazing people and keep growing and hopefully we'll keep growing is i think the gist of this episode don't get stuck in a rut thinking it has to be this way. You're allowed to have evolution of stuff. There, my, <clears throat> one of my favorite stories when it comes down to like technology and what kind of helped jar my brain out of being in this purest mentality was from like 2018, by the way. It was like from 2017, 2018 that this happened. <laughs> Hold on. So... I was at Bon Echo, which is on Mazinaw Lake. It's a provincial park here in Ontario. And uh, at the time, a friend of mine worked at the park. I, I can't remember if he was a ranger or a warden or what the definitions. He worked at the park. And another good friend of mine and I were hanging out, and we were just kind of exploring the trails and stuff. And we had a chance to meet up with this buddy who I hadn't seen in like a year or so at that point. I love you, Mitch. I miss you. Come back to me, Mitch. Anyways, um, my friend and I had our phones out. We were waiting for him to come along. And my friend mentioned, dude, there's a Pokestop here. Yeah, I pick, I play Pokemon Go. <laughs> I bet that's, I bet one of the next emails I get on the, the Canadian Bushcraft email, uh, the Canadian Bushcraft podcast email is going to be, what's your username or what's your code? And if you want them, email me, CanadianBushcraftPodcast at gmail.com. I'll give you my Pokemon Go code, and you can send me gifts, and I'll send you gifts. That's that's always how I am. I This is the only video game I really play. I used to play a lot of video games growing up. Again, talking about technology. And today, <clears throat> these days, that's really all I play. I had Jurassic World Alive for a while because I love dinosaurs, if you haven't figured that out. And I had a couple other online games that were on my phone. And then I just kind of got rid of them all because they were just taking up a lot of space on my memory and my data. <clears throat> and they didn't make me feel good. Same reason I got rid of most of my social media. 
They weren't making me feel good. But anyways, my buddy goes, this, this spot that we're sitting at has a Pokestop. I was like, no way. And I pull up my phone and I'm like, holy crap, there's a Pokestop here. Dude, there's a gym over there. There's a, there's the trails and everything. And Mitch came by and we mentioned this to him because he also at the time played Pokemon Go. And he goes, yeah, actually there was a moment back in, I think it was the summer before where 911 was called from Bon Echo by somebody who was lost hiking. And the dispatcher went, well, where are you? Oh, you're at Bon Echo. And they thought about it for a second and said, do you have Pokemon Go on your phone? And they turned it on. And Pokemon Go, for like one of the reasons it's become a really popular game is how fairly accurate the GPS is. It's pretty good. It's using the Google Earth or Google Maps programming, from what I understand, which is, you know, as you know, it's not always perfect, but it's pretty damn good for a phone GPS system. Um, especially for just an app that's on your phone, not an actual like Garmin phone or something. But anyways, uh, because it's based off that and they have their whole plans and everything set up, the dispatcher was able to show them like, hey, do you see where that Pokemon gym is? Yeah, that's the that's the the main cabin. Walk to it. And oh, look, there's trails. Follow the trail. And the lost hiker was able to unlost themselves they were able to self-rescue and not make an emergency that had to send in police and search and rescue to look for this person. The dispatcher thinking quick on their feet, or I guess in their chair was able to save thousands, if not. <laughs> so apparently we had a glitch in the system and our microphone cut out at the end of that story. I want to thank our listeners who tuned in for that long, long episode or this long episode and then contact us to let us know that something was wrong. It's taken us this long to get the microphone to work. We're back. So let's finish that story off and give it a good conclusion. So the police officer slash dispatcher who responded to the call saved tens of thousands of dollars of resources, labor, and time in a search and rescue operation by simply saying, hey, since you're talking to me on a phone and you've got reception, do you mind checking to see if you have Pokemon Go? Okay, you got Pokemon Go? Do you mind checking to see if there's a gym nearby? Okay, that gym is the ranger station slash visitor center slash lodge slash whatever you want to call it. Go there. This is a really intelligent, wise way of using technology in bushcraft. This is how we don't demonize it. This is how we don't turn into a monster, the boogeyman, or judge people for bringing technology with them into the field. And I think that's the most important part of what this whole episode is about is we need to learn to marry the old ways and old knowledges with modern technology and modern material. And so don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to hybridize. Don't be afraid to step outside of canvas and buckskin and cast iron. Try out some of the newer stuff. You don't have to always have a kerosene lantern with you. In fact, sometimes kerosene lanterns are a pain in the butt. Sometimes propane lanterns are a pain in the butt. Sometimes rechargeable lanterns are just fine within their own means, within their own bounds. So with that, I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Stay, uh, stay safe, experiment, be out there, practice your skills in the landscape, tread softly, and as per usual, we have a big thank you for our patrons coming up right now. 
And with that, I want to give a huge shout to our supporters over at Patreon. These folks, you amazing people, keep the lights on here. Keep us financially able to continue doing this podcast and do even more amazing things that are coming down the pipeline. We've got a lot of really cool projects coming up that we could not do without people like Jason Keane, Tyler Scott, Carrie Lachance, Renee Nolting, and so many others. And as always, we're always trying to give back to the community, uh, specifically in our Patreon, but elsewhere as well. Uh, We are doing online classes every month for certain tiers of the podcast Patreon. We also have other things coming up that are going to be really cool kickbacks. So stay tuned. If you want to be part of that, you know, it can cost you as little as a cup of coffee a day or a cup of coffee a month, actually. Uh, to keep this podcast moving forward, to keep us supported and you can get a lot of kickbacks in return. So jump on over there and see what you can do, see what we can do for you. And I hope to see you soon in one of our virtual classes until next time, folks.